really especially wonderful to see people I haven't seen in a long time come back. And part of what I thought I would talk about today is um, uh, what becomes important uh, again when the mind is waked up. You know, two weeks ago, when uh, on the day after the on the day after September 11th, no one knows anymore what to call that day. You know, we just say it's the day after September 11th or the day before it. I think I told you on the day after it that uh, when I drove here uh, that morning, I stopped in a coffee stand in San Anselmo and uh, was getting a cup of coffee. And I said to the young man behind the counter, just as I'm paying for my coffee, something about um, it's different today than yesterday. And um, he that looked at me with such a, a plaintive, I thought, look. He, Perhaps I may have read it, but really looked at me and he said, "You know, t- yesterday was my birthday." And um, I said, "How old are you?" And he said, "I was 19." And um, it looked like what his uh, what he was saying. There were so many levels that maybe I was reading into it. Maybe he didn't mean all of those levels, and I just read them in. But uh, I thought maybe he was saying. Um, I really got born yesterday to what kind of a world this is. Or maybe he was saying, I missed my birthday. Nobody said happy birthday. Or uh, maybe he said, it's a heck of a way to have a birthday. Or I didn't, didn't know what he meant, really. And uh, I, said, I said to him, and I hoped it had 10 levels of meaning, I said, happy birthday. Mm-hmm. You know, and... Um, Somehow, I, it went through my mind for a minute, maybe that's way too trivial to say happy birthday. But honestly, I wanted him to have a happy birthday. I wanted it not to be a day that was the end of all hope. And then when I was leaving the, with my coffee and coming here, I thought to myself, in a sense, we were all born the day before. The whole world got born. It's the first time collectively in the history of the world that all over in the remotest places on the globe, people were watching in real time what was going on. Never, I think, this may be a, a, a more hopeful view than a reasonable view. I hope it's hopeful and reasonable that I thought, you know, if there's a possibility for human beings to really get it collectively, all of a sudden, the terrible sequelae of uh, unrecognized, unacknowledged, and unworked out, unnegotiated anger. And see the terrible sequelae that can happen. This is without right and wrong. Terrible sequelae of greed. And that somehow that's not acknowledged and not rectified in some way. The terrible sequelae of delusion, of not getting it, that this is a very small planet. This is not the way that it's going to last. Um, in a very peculiar and somehow dear irony, uh, my elder daughter and her family had their week of holiday that very week. And on uh, the Saturday or Sunday before, they had driven down to Disneyland for a week. 
and they had a hotel. And in the middle of the week, uh, that was a Tuesday, and they had to decide should they drive home. And they decided to stay. It was there. They had their two children with them. And they came home at the end of the week. And uh, they'd certainly been aware of what was going on. They watched the television after their children had gone to sleep. Their children are f just four and almost two. And um, Disneyland was closed, by the way, for a couple of days. Uh, they came home, and uh, I said, uh, uh, I said to Harrison, what was the best thing about it? And he said, oh, it's a small world. And I thought, <laughs> Uh, and he sang it for me. It's a small world after all. I thought, oh, this is really the week that we have learned. It's a small world after all. There's nobody who doesn't live on this planet. And the, you know, uh, sometimes I think to myself, maybe it's my father and his Panglossian attempt to make. You know, this will be all right. We'll get it. That we have to stop making us and them. Um, I hope we get something. One of the things, uh, I've, I've had a pile of things that I brought as I sat here. I thought to myself, I want to talk about all of these things. I've been having my education uh, uh, happen parenthetically on the email. And I have a very big faith in the, uh, in the email. <coughs> Uh, I, 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 on the day that the uh, Berlin Wall came down, somebody said that the divisions between the East and the West had come down courtesy of the fax machine. Did you hear that? That, 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 that people behind uh, curtains uh, where communication was blocked were not kept from news and from encouraging and inspiring um, uh, strength-giving messages that said, listen, don't give up hope, we could have a world that's free. Because nobody could monitor the telephone. You could monitor the mail, you could monitor the books that come in, but you can't monitor, so far, the telephone. And so people could send messages by fax, and people were sending hopeful messages to the people behind the Iron Curtain that hold on, you know, the world really does want peace, and they want to a community of peace, and you can do it, and don't give up hope. And I remember thinking about that and changed my relationship to my fax machine. You hear it go off, and you suddenly think, ah, you know, it's another fax from something, do something. They know this fax machine is the whole world talking to each other, and the email is the whole world talking to each other, that we can say things to each other in a way that we couldn't say before. And... Um, keep up each other's spirits and tell each other things that we need to hear. I got an email on the day after that event from my friend Marie Manschatz. Many of you know her. She's a, a Vipassana teacher in Germany and teaches here at Spirit Rock for a month every year in February. Marie is a wonderful teacher. And... Uh, she said, uh, I'm, I'm booked on a flight to Boston next week. She said, and I'm going. She said, First of all, she said, that's unimaginable. I'm thinking about you all the time. And uh, she said, I'm going to Barry for six weeks on my way to coming to teach at Spirit Rock. 
She says, it's a strange thing to be going on retreat for six weeks at this time. You know, there's so many things to do in the world. But here's her words. She said, um, it seems to me that my commitment to enter deep silence is the most peaceful contribution I can offer these days. I think for each of us, and I admire that very much, I think for each of us we have to figure out what is the most peaceful contribution we can do these days. There's a sense, I think, uh, don't you think that everybody feels we have to do something? That somehow it mobilizes, the startle mobilizes. Um, Let's see if I can do this without a political polemic. I'd like to do it that way. Because I'm, you know, I really don't want to be a political commentator. Half of this is full of political commentary telling me who's responsible and what to do. And everybody is, I, I read it really carefully. I know what I am disinclined to do. And uh, I went, uh, nowhere did I meet anybody except one place this week where people said we have to make a war right away. Everybody was concerned and have to do something. But nobody wanted, uh, everybody said, you know, I don't want the United States to be in the position of wreaking the same kind of havoc on other innocent people, of doing that same sort of thing back on other people. Everybody said that until I met one person, and it was a test for me, so I'm going to tell you the test. I thought I did it well, so I just want to share my answer with you in case it's helpful to you. I went to the bank. And it's been my practice to ask every single person I meet since then, how are you? It's a new world. You have to ask, how are you doing? Um, And every single person gets it that you're not just passing the time of day. They really tell you how they're doing. I think more than ever, people want to tell you how they're doing. I mean, one of the things I think that happens is we become so aware of how precious life is that we don't pass by people as if they're empty bodies going by, that we pass by them like there's someone in them and we want to connect in some meaningful way. So I said to the person in the bank, how are you? The person in the bank said, uh, I'm okay. So I said, well, yeah. and looking at me, I said, well, how are you about what's going on? She said, well, she said, um, I think we're going to go and get them. Who are we going to get? It's, and... She said, well, we have to do something. We have to punish the people. She said, we have to do something. And I, I, in that moment, I realized I could make a speech about we're not clear about who the people are or where they are or what we would be doing. And I realized that wasn't what the answer that was going to be most helpful. Uh, what I wanted to respond to was the fact of her distress and dismay and her feeling, which I share, we have to do something. It's just the clarity about what it is that we ought to do that I think needs some discussion and some adequate planning. So instead, so I, was very, I was very pleased with myself that I said, you know, I quite, she said, we have to punish people back. And I said, well, I quite agree that we have to do something. I just didn't even question what she said, we have to do something. And I think I spoke to the part of all of us that wants to do something. And the question is, what do we do? Uh, my son flew to Atlanta on business the end of last week it was his first flight after all of this 
He said the whole flight crew, uh, she said everybody was very nice to each other on the plane, people talking to Flight crew, he said, was hanging around the door while people were getting off and uh, everybody hugging each other, getting on and off the plane. <laughs> I Seriously, I'll read you this. This is very sweet. And I, and I know that Joe is here. Have you flown, Joe, since? I have flown, but I didn't make the trip, but I, I flew. Yeah. Flown. To Asia? No, actually just down to San Diego. Oh. I had to go hug my sister. Yeah. Everybody had to go home and hug somebody. Here's another email. <laughs> on Monday, we emailed jokes. On Tuesday, we did not. On Monday, we thought we were secure. On Tuesday, we learned better. On Monday, we were talking about heroes as being athletes, and Tuesday, we relearned who our heroes were. Uh, Heroes. On Monday, we were irritated that our rebate checks had not arrived. On Tuesday, we gave money away to people we'd never met. On Monday, there were people fighting against praying in schools. On Tuesday, they would have been hard-pressed to find a school where someone was not praying. (laughs) On Monday, people argued with their kids about picking up their room. On Tuesday, the same people could not get home fast enough to hug their kids. On Monday, people were upset that they had to wait six minutes in a fast food drive through line. On Tuesday, people didn't care about waiting six hours to give blood. Some of them are interesting. The next one says, On Monday, we waved our flags signifying our cultural diversity. On Tuesday, we waved only the American flag. I'm a little concerned about that. I... That one doesn't sit so well. I want to, ra- I want to wave all the flags. You know, I want to wave all the flags. One of my emails, I don't know if I brought it with me, uh, it may, it'll probably come through yours. All of these were listservs. was an email of um, color photos from all around the world of memorials in different cities. Did you see them? Yes. Those are beautiful. What was the email that you should send to? I've forgotten. Uh, what's it called? Uh, I can't well, thank you. It was called Thank You, but yeah. what what'd you get it on? But it, it showed pictures in all countries all over the world. It showed the German athletes, um, big guys about to play soccer, who were sitting on the sidelines and crying and not wanting to play. Um, showed people all over the world crying. People all over the world are crying. This is a very sweet story, and I think it's another. This is a true story. This is a letter written by a professional woman who had been away on a business trip and her return flight to Washington, D.C., got forwarded to me by a few people, so it's come through a number of people. I don't know who. Uh, I just wanted to drop you all a note and let you know I arrived safe and sound into Dulles Airport tonight at about 6 o'clock. It was an interesting flight. The airport in Denver was almost spooky. It was so empty and quiet. No one was in the line for the security checkpoint when I got there, so that went fairly quickly. Just x-ray of my bags and then a chemical test to be sure nothing explosive was on them. Then I waited two and a half hours to board the plane. What happened after we boarded was interesting, and I thought I would share it with you. The pilot, Captain, came on the loudspeaker after the doors were closed. His speech went like this. First, I want to thank you for being brave enough to fly today. 
The doors are now closed and we have no help from the outside for any problems that might occur inside this plane. As you can tell when you checked in, the government has made some changes to increase the security of the airports. They have not, however, made any rules about what happens after those doors closed. Until they do, we have made our own rules. And I want to tell them to you. Once these doors close, we have only each other. From here on in, every time I say plane, I'd like you to put a T on the end of that word. Okay? We've all gotten on. The doors are closed. We have nobody here but each other. The security has taken care of a threat like guns with all the increased scanning, etc. Then we have the supposed bomb. If you have a bomb, there is no need to tell me about it or anyone else on this plane. You are already in charge. So for this flight, there are no bombs that exist on this plane. Now, the threats that are left are things like plastics, wood, knives, and other weapons which can be made or things like that which can be used as weapons. Here is our plan and our rules. This is serious now. If someone or several people stand up and say they are hijacking the plane, I want you all to stand up together. Then take whatever you have available to you and throw it at them. (laughs) It's serious. It says throw it at their faces and heads so they will have to raise their hands to protect themselves. The very breast protection you have against knives are pillows and blankets. Whoever is close to these people should then try to get a blanket over their head. Then they won't be able to see. Once that is done, get them down and keep them there. Do not let them up. I will then land the plane at the closest airport and will take care of them. After all, there are usually only a few of them, and we had 200 plus strong. We will not allow them to take over this plane. I find it interesting that the U.S. Constitution begins with the words, We the people. That's who we are, the people. With that, the people, the passengers on the plane all began to applaud. People had tears in their eyes. We began the trip toward the runway. The flight attendant then began the safety speech. One of the things she said is that we're all so busy and live our lives at such a fat, fast pace. She asked that everyone turn to their neighbors on either side and introduce themselves, tell each other something about your families <laughs> and children, I think it's a great idea. Show pictures, whatever. She said, for today, we are considering you family. We will treat you as such, and we ask you to do the same with us. Throughout the flight, we learned that for the crew, that this was their first flight since Tuesday's tragedies. It was a day that everyone leaned on each other, and everyone together was stronger than any one person alone. It was quite an experience. You can imagine the feeling when that plane touched down at Dulles and we heard, Welcome to Washington Dulles Airport, where the local time is 5.40 p.m. I not have the last page. It says everybody applauded again. Uh, you probably will not fly again without also hearing when they say, Welcome to Dulles. Welcome to Logan Airport. But really, it's the same. You know, plane's a little bit more exaggerated form of you get into some place and you say sharing a trip with other people and you don't know who in the middle of the trip isn't going to want to go on with it. We're on this planet with people who don't want to finish the trip with everybody on it. And how we can fix it, really, I think that I really wanted to talk Dharma today. 
I wanted to talk about when the Buddha saw the consequences of greed and hatred and delusion and said, what is there to be done? What he did was he sat, meditated, and, and through an intuitive understanding of the fact that really there is no one anywhere who is separate from anyone anyplace else. Really, in uh, in a uh, flash of insight, that lives arise and pass away, bodies arise and pass away, really like fruit trees arise and pass away, and seasons arise and pass away, contingent on events. Certain things have to happen, so bodies get formed and they get born, and animal bodies and fish bodies and bird bodies and tree bodies. There are necessary and sufficient conditions for them to get born, they get born, and everything that's born has a life cycle. <coughs> and everything is happening really interrelated according to those all conditions. When you think about when we sat, and we sat and experienced breathing together. This breathing is happening because so far the atmosphere isn't so polluted. The breathing will work. The biosphere is still intact. We can sit here and breathe easily. There really is a, a sense that I often have when I sit that I am not breathing, that there's a kind of cosmic breathing that's happening with oxygen and carbon dioxide shuffling around in and out of various bodies in sync with each other, shuffles in and out of the trees, goes in as carbon dioxide and comes out as oxygen, comes into animals and plants as oxygen and goes out as, no, comes into animals as oxygen, goes out as carbon dioxide, goes into plants as carbon dioxide and it comes out as oxygen. And it's just all, we're all giving each other artificial respiration. That's why we need rainforests. That's why we need people not to cut down rainforests. So the rainforest will be there, so we'll breathe. And it's really like one breathing organism, this earth. The sense that the Buddha got in his uh, meditation of no separateness, that sense of anatta, it's very puzzling to people when they begin to practice and talk about what are the characteristics of experience, what's true about the human mind, what's the point of practice. I remember when I first began to practice uh, listening to Dharma talks that began, um, now tonight I'm going to teach you about the, tell you about the three characteristics of experience that you'll discover through your practice, or that you're hoping to discover through your practice. And I'd think to myself, no, no, don't tell me. You know, there won't be any... It wouldn't be interesting if you tell me, you know, it's like a mystery book. You don't want to tell what's on the last page in the beginning. It's mine to find out. And besides, if you tell me, how will I know that I found it out? How will I just won't know that you told me, you know, that cheated in a certain way? And maybe it won't be a real insight. Of course, I just thought that. I didn't say that. So they went barreling right along and did what they did. (laughs) So then I had to think to myself, well, I wonder since the three things that they said, that everything is uh, impermanent, that things arise and pass away, and so nothing could be permanently counted on as being there. Everything has a lifespan. 
But I thought to myself, I already know that. That's a sort of garden variety thing, you know. <laughs> it's not such a big insight. And uh, then they said the second insight about suffering, that uh, there's a difference between uh, pain and suffering, that pain is what happens in life, and uh, joy is what happens in life as well. It's not all grim. But that they pass, and uh, that um, the suffering in the mind is not... Uh, is it, suffering in the mind is the extra tension in the mind around wanting so much for joy to remain when it's ephemeral and wanting so much for pain to not happen or to leave because it leaves when it's ready to and when it's run its course and not before that. And to add to it with su- struggle in the mind, there are things that we can fix and change uh, Obviously, there are pains that you can fix and change. There are a lot of pains that you can fix and change. And there are a lot of painful things that we need to endure. The sadness of the loss of people who are dear to us. It's the most prominent. Nobody says to people, well, done is done. You should finish your mourning now in two weeks. Why, you know, why take a year to mourn or two years? It's such a waste of time. Finish, two weeks, done is done. I mean, the, the metabolism can't do it. There are life cycles for grieving, and they're painful. But you can stay with it, and then it's finished. You can struggle to get rid of it. You can struggle to try to hold on to it. So I actually got that about the difference between pain and suffering. I've wondered a lot. I still wonder a lot when uh, about if I got that one really as well as I think I got it, why I still suffer, you know, that... If I, doesn't it happen for you that your mind gets stuck in a knot and you say to yourself, this is such a stupid knot for my mind to get stuck in. I can't believe that I'm aggravating myself about this. Doesn't that happen to you? I can't believe I'm aggravating myself about this. It's such a ridiculous thing. I'm even embarrassed to tell people that I'm aggravating myself about this. But, and if I stopped aggravating myself, there's nothing I can do about it. My great friend Alta, who's died, oh, now four or five years ago, she used to say, I can't do anything about it, so I don't worry about it. And I thought she must have taken some magic elixir <laughs> of it, uh, that she took, you know, that I knew she was strung differently than I. I, they, I can't do that. Sometimes I, struggle, I get tied in a knot, and I can't let it go. And I actually make the knot tighter by aggravating myself about why can't I let go of this knot, you know. That, so it gets worse and worse and worse. And if I were really a spiritual person, then I would really be able to get rid of this. I'd just put it down, you know, let go and get God, let God. I mean, people say all kinds of really lovely things if you could do them. But, so, but it, I think an understanding of it has made me not more able to let go of suffering, just drop it, but more compassionate when I can't. I really do know if I could let go of this, I'd feel better, and I can't let go of it. So there's nothing left to have but compassion for myself, for everybody else, because we're all in that same boat. Anybody recognizes that particular? Am I the only person in that boat? There you go. Okay. (laughs) A little reassuring, I suppose, not to find out that I'm the only person who has it. But the third, the third characteristic that they, the teachers presented, that characteristic of no one separate from anyone else, that it's just all conditioned arising. 
amazing. Their personalities that are different for sure, and uh, physical characteristics that are different for sure, and uh, this body, which is physically separate, although I'm not so sure energetically separate from everything else. Physically, this goes home to one bed, and those go home to other beds. This will die on different days from everybody else's. But that there's nothing that was separate and non-changing about me that was Sylvia. That this whole changing organism is Sylvia. Because it certainly feels like there's a little Sylvia in there. Doesn't it? Somebody said to me recently, that other person that I'm constantly in conversation with, you know that other person that you're constantly in conversation with, what should I do now? I'll do that later. Oh, I forgot my car keys. I'll have to go back in. The other person that you're always talking to in the back of your mind, that's you, isn't it? That's the real you. This is the narrator of you, and that's the real you. There isn't a real you. There isn't a real you. There's the, the faculty of awareness that I suppose does the narration, but there isn't a you. And there's a way in which when there isn't a you, and you feel it, there are moments when you actually get it, that this is a whole conditioned reality. Nobody can tell you it. You get it. And then you realize so is everyone else. And that there isn't a me and there isn't a you. There's just the whole of reality unfolding in these many amazing and wonderful forms. That awareness, if the whole world got it, would be the end of a sense of other, a sense of me and you. It the end of a sense of not sharing. You know, 10 years ago I went to India with uh, my friend uh, James Barras, with about 10 people. We all went together. And we went to see a particular spiritual teacher in the uh, Advaita tradition. His name was uh, Punja, P-O-O-N-J-A. Shri Punja. People called him Punjaji. It's a diminutive, it's an affectionate term. He um, was in Lucknow in India. And some other friends of ours had been there and come home and said, this is a really enlightened being. You have to go see him. And he's old. He was in his mid-80s. He's died since. So a a group of us went to India. And um, how many people here have been to India? It's an extraordinary experience to go to India. It's not like anything else. The whole of India is so mysterious, teeming with people. It has much more quality of alive somehow. Anyway, we went every day. It was a whole project. You'd go in the morning from our hotel by different conveyances, taxis, and finally end up an hour or so later in his outskirts little village and uh, go and sit on the floor of his uh, quite small living room. He sat up on one of these wooden daises like this. And he taught um, in a dialogue inquiry form. Um, He was a disciple of Ramana Maharshi and um, taught in a style of dialogue where he'd engage people in conversation and through the conversation, through pointing their attention to this way or that way, they would often, in the midst of discussion, have a really direct hit to the fact that their sense of I, as a person, as a something, 
who owned a certain emotion that was present was a construct, an optical illusion. They'd be in a moment freed from that sense of I, which is free from a sense of separate, which is free from a sense of not safe. She didn't realize there's no I, there's no one that's not safe. It's quite a dramatic moment. So he'd engage people in conversations. It was a wonderful couple of weeks that we spent there. And then at the end, James and I got to have an interview with him. And um, you know, so he recognized us a little bit. We'd been a fairly small group. And we met with him alone, and he wanted to know what we taught at Spirit Rock. And James started, and he said, well, we teach mindfulness and um, metta meditation. And we particularly um, teach generosity. We emphasize dana. And uh, Punja said, uh, there's no such thing as generosity. So, all right, so first of all, I look at James, and he looks at me. And we just got, you know, we were all revved up. We're going to go see, you know, we're going to go see this great guru and, you know, impress, at least try to impress him that we know something. And first shot out, we teach this, this, and generosity. He says, there's no such thing as generosity. Okay. So he said, well, think about it. He said, um, if you the food in front of you on a plate and you're hungry and you, your hand puts the food in your mouth, you think of your hand as generous? No. It's just the normal, natural response to the need of the moment. And he said, well, think about it now. Somebody else is in front of you and they're hungry and there's food on the dish in front of you. You put the food in their mouth. That, that generosity, it's the normal response of the moment. It's the normal response of the heart to the moment. You think about it. I look at James. He looks at me. Seems right. Okay. You know. So talk about this a little later. <laughs> so, uh, but it, when you think about it, it's a very hopeful dharma because it really, I, I think it's actually a lovely, I, I hope it's true, that uh, I think it's true. I take a lot of courage from believing that it's true that the nature, the inclination of our hearts, just naturally, when we aren't frightened and jeopardized, is generous and kind. It gets complicated if we are starving or our children are starving or we have a sense that this is the last piece of food that we might see for a long time and maybe I should take it home and hide it out for my children or but mostly, if we're all right, we share. I think it's a natural inclination of the heart. So James and I had a big talk about it afterwards. And we talked about uh, what happens when you go through your closets, like now here it is coming on fall. It's really fall, so you have to put away the summer clothes. As you do that, you take them and you put them, say, in the back of a closet or another closet if you actually have a second closet. And so here you're taking out summer clothes and you look at a piece of clothing that you know you didn't wear the whole summer. And then when you think it over, you didn't wear it last summer either. And then you think, I could give this to the Goodwill. I could give this to the Salvation Army. Somebody could wear it right now. Then you think, well, on the other hand, it's still pretty stock. And then at some point you make a decision. Okay, Goodwill or back of the closet for another year. And I said to James, what if, you know, you put, this goes to the goodwill, this goes to the goodwill, this goes to the goodwill. Well, it's not a problem. 
and said, isn't that generosity? I said, well, you know, it, it might be, but it might be just closet cleaning, you know, that, you know, for whose benefit? Maybe it's just cleaning out your closet because it's crowded. And so they think, well, what about when I take something out of the closet and I say, you know, this is really a nice item and I really still like it and it fits and it's actually still stylish, but I give it to the goodwill anyway. I have enough. Yeah. Maybe that's generosity. I remember I said to James, listen, James, don't you think that's generosity? And he, I think what he said was, maybe it was just someone else's need winning out over your need. Mm. Who needs more? Maybe there's no such thing as generosity. Mm. That's okay if there's no such thing as generosity. What there is in its place is the natural inclination of the heart to share. That's what I like to think is true. The best I think we're all buoyed up from the stories of the outpouring of sharing, not only of stuff, but of lives in the last couple of weeks. I heard all kinds of stories about the uh, shopkeepers along the streets uh, bordering the World Trade Center, who, when it became clear what was happening, and throngs of people were running past them, their stores, because they were going to have to walk home. Uh, people who were running, many of them barefoot, because women in high heel shoes had just flung off their shoes and running along. The people with, uh, with um, um, running shoe stores opened their doors and just gave out shoes to everybody who went by, just gave out shoes. And the vendors gave out all their drinks and all their food to sustain people. And people got over the Brooklyn Bridge into um, a whole other community where they set up stands to feed people when they came over the bridge. That uh, People didn't think about themselves, what I need for me. They just needed something. To, they needed to be able to do something. I think what happens when we wake up whether or not we can say, suddenly I realize that everyone is my kin. If you go back to the story on the plane where they said, uh, we're going to treat you all as family, there's a moment where you wake up and you say, everybody is my family. And the whole reason I told you this kind of metaphysical uh, uh, connection to the truth is there's no one in there who isn't family or is family. It's just people. It's a world full of people. The world full of people and plants and animals, all borning and dying and borning and dying in a wonderful creative cycle together. And the sense that we are separate and adversarial is something that we made up. And we can get over it. We're going to have to get over it if we're going to have a, a world that's viable. Really, we're going to have to need to feed each other. I'll tell you two stories. Or take care of each other. It's a story a friend of mine told me last week. He's just moved to uh, Santa Fe. Um, he was telling me about uh, uh, the carved um, saint, painted saint, La Conquistadora. That's a version of uh, Mary. Uh, carved in wood in the 1400 in Spain as an attempt to uh, ease the relationships between the Spaniards and um, the Moors and the Christians at that point, fighting. 
So she looks like a Spanish princess. And she somehow was brought to the New World and brought to Santa Fe by the Spanish when they came and uh, installed in a chapel in Santa Fe, where she is now. And uh, the Spanish lived for some time in Santa Fe in concert with the Pueblo Indians who were there, and comfortably enough. And at some point, there were some skirmishes, and the Pueblo rose up and asked the Spaniards to leave, and they retreated to El Paso, where they were for some years. Uh, at the end of that time, uh, the Apache came down and uh, began to make problems for the Pueblo Indians who, according to the legend, said, you know, we had it better with the Spanish here. We had more people, and they had an army, and they helped protect us, and so maybe we should invite the Spanish back. So they invited the Spanish to come back, and the story, the fable around this um, icon, La Conquistadora, the Spanish princess of St. Mary, was uh, that the leader of the Spanish forces in El Paso asked for permission to go back. And they said, you can only go back and try to resolve this conflict if not a drop of blood is shed. Um, you have to guarantee on either side. So the story goes that he prayed for nine days, did a novena, prayed for nine days. And the instruction he got in prayer was you can go back but what you have to do when you go back is cook for the Pueblo Indians, set up a fiesta in the town square and cook them and serve, cook for them and serve them food. The main thing you have to serve them is hot chocolate. That was his vision. That was his message for, through prayer. So they went back. It's got a good end. Take 10 people, go to Santa Fe, cook for the Pueblos for nine days, and serve hot chocolate. <laughs> he did. The majority of the Pueblos came and entered into discussions inviting the Spanish to return, which they did later in that year. De Vargas, who was the head of the troops, uh, composed a prayer to La Conquistadora, the image of love that heals all divisions. And every year there's a fiesta in her honor to this day with prayer, with food, and with hot chocolate. New Mexico is the only place in the United States where Native Americans were not displaced from their sacred lands. It's the end of that story. And have not had a group. It's not so clearly a demarcated society racially anymore because one of the other things that happened is a great deal of intermarriage happened. People invited each other home for hot chocolate and stayed there, apparently. <laughs> And so uh, the idea of uh, ethnic um, demarcations is not so, happily, not so clear. The other story, I don't have the email, but I remember it, was an email that passed around the uh, internet, you may have seen it, of um, written to a friend, to a friend, to a friend that got to me uh, through a listserv uh, that goes like this. Um, uh, my name is um, Usman Fakur. I am uh, 22 years old. I um, 
I finished my MBA in uh, economics in uh, uh, last June. I have been working in World Trade Center One. I am Pakistani. I am Muslim. On uh, uh, three days ago, the written after uh, this is on the fourteenth. Three days ago, I went to work, and uh, amazingly, somehow, when I walked into the lobby, didn't realize anything was happening. I heard a big bang outside, and they've been doing a lot of construction. So I got right in the elevator. I thought it was just construction. I went up to the 22nd floor. When I got out there, there was not a single person in my whole office. So I thought, uh-oh, something isn't right here. So I rushed out of my office and walked, got a stairwell that I could get through and went down 22 floors. And when I got down, the lobby was quite full of crowds of people running out, and I ran out with them. And I had run, uh, been walking and running, so about two blocks away, and suddenly there was a huge, big, terrible boom behind me. My whole body was picked up and flung at a distance. I was thrown over on my back, and I was stunned for a minute, and I think I, I, think I probably was unconscious for a minute, or I don't know how long, but I opened my eyes, and leaning over me, was a man uh, dressed as a chassid, uh, an Orthodox Jew, in a black suit with a black hat. He said, my shirt had been ripped open and I have a Muslim, uh, Muslim religious medal pinned around my neck on, uh, on a chain. And uh, this figure was leaning over me and had my medal in his hand, had it turned over, and was reading to me in Arabic, What's written on the back of the medal, Father of Compassion, it's a protection medal. He said, and I opened my eyes, his, he's reading me my protection medal in Arabic, and he looked down at me and said, be so kind as to listen. There is a wall of shattered glass moving quickly in our direction. Give me your hand, brother, and let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> And it just makes me tearful to think about that. I think the operative word is, give me your hand, brother. And that we are going to have to forget every distinction of how people look and where they came from and who their ancestry is. It's a very small plane and it's a very small planet. We're going to have to say, show me your baby pictures. You got a family at home? Um, give me your hand. I once did that. Uh, I think I've probably told it. I only remember it every once in a while because it's a story without any dialogue. I was on a, on a plane. Sorry for all these plane stories. <laughs> I travel a lot on planes. I was on a plane flying from here to the East Coast and over the Rockies, as happens not infrequently, there are pockets of very, uh, passages of very bumpy air that no one can see. Normally the captain will know, come on, Teddy, put on the seatbelt. So all of a sudden, bum, 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 for a while, it feels like you're riding over cobblestones in New York. Dun, 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 dun. That's going on for a while. Really. So you look up, you see, is everybody all right? You know, everybody, everybody's put down their book at this point, looking around, you know, because the, the weather is perfect outside. The air is clear, you can't see anything. And I looked at the woman next to me 
with whom I had not exchanged a single word. You know, often I talked to people, but one reason or another, I was tired of who knows what. I'd, I'd just been reading, doing my stuff. She said, I looked at her, she looked at me. I put out my hand, and we held hands. I don't know who she was, whatever. We just held hands, you know. Bum, 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 long bum. And then finally it finished. So then you let go of the hand, smile, and go back to what you're doing. That was the end. But, and, and, you know, and then the pilot comes on and says, sorry, folks, that was a uh, mountain waves. You can't see it. If I'd seen it, I would have told you about it. You know, um, I don't want them to tell me about it. I just want them to steer while that's happening. You know, tell me about it afterwards. But I think that that's a natural inclination. Give me your hand, brother. Give me your hand, sister. Just reach. That on the very morning of September 11th, when I, uh, they, they, as soon as there was a breath and people started to do commentary on what was happening, people said New Yorkers are walking around in the street, completely dazed, but they're looking at each other. And they said New Yorkers don't look at each other. They look... They, they see where each other is so that they can walk around them and they don't bump into them in the street, but they don't look at them in the eyes. And the, and the commentator said, they're looking in there as if to say, are you in there? You know, Are you still in there? Is there someone alive in there? What could we say real to each other? And what could we say really real? There's a, uh, maybe I'll tell you one more thing and then maybe there'll be things that you want to say. This particular uh, issue of The New Yorker, it's last week's issue. If, if you know, what, what can you possibly do? If you look at it very closely and in the light, I could pass it around. The World Trade Buildings are there. That's black on black, but you have to, can you see it at all? I'll pass it. It's a. It's really. Uh, you see that in the W, there's a there's a, a break. It. Do you see in the W, there's a break in the letter. It's the spire, of the larger building. I'll pass it around. It's a really an extraordinary issue, of um, everyone. Of the New Yorker writing staff writing about their experience and what was happening. But uh, this is so important, this particular one. I want to tell it to you just to think about as the Dharma of this. This particular person is uh, talking about um, uh, a nightmare that he's been having about planes flying too low between buildings, but that's not the part. He said, I always wake up from those nightmares. Last Tuesday, he said, there was no awakening. You found your way to a TV and watched, unless you were, a, you were a very good person indeed. You were probably, like me, experiencing the collision of several impossible worlds inside your head. This is so important. Besides the horror and sadness of what you were watching, you might have also felt a childish disappointment over the disruption of your day or a selfish worry about the impact on your finances or an admiration for an attack so brilliantly conceived and so flawlessly executed or worst of all, an odd appreciation of the visual spectacle it produced. We don't have to ask anybody if they thought any of those thoughts. All but of the above. All of the above. Okay. You know? 
you think to yourself, what's the matter with me? You know, what is my mind? That's what our mind is. It does everything. It's completely, not certainly in anybody's control. Everything happens in there. It's on its own, really. And everything happens. This is this line, unless you're a very, very good person indeed, you are probably like me. Everything happens. The One of the <laughs> lines that somebody said to me in the last year that I have taken with me with so much appreciation is they said, in quite in, in relationship to something else, the mind does whatever it does, and then the heart makes the right decision. Mm-hmm. You know, that... What we have to be able to see about ourselves is that these are people, we are people, these are people, and people, everything occurs to them. Everything occurs to them. And the choice is possible, what I'm going to do. When you think about it, because we think to ourselves, what could have been in the minds of these perpetrators? It's impossible, really, to think, but look what's in everybody's mind. Childish uh, admiration. I mean, the things like, oh, I was waiting six. I, this was not my story, but somebody said I was waiting six months to get to go see the special dentist about this problem in the back of my mouth, and I had the appointment for that day. Got canceled. But you know, and and to even have the thought, shoot, when am I going to go to that dentist? When upwards of six thousand people got killed. But you have the thought. You know, because we are not, everything's in there. I've been trying to think about um, doing a special meditation or teaching a special meditation called Mindfulness of Ignoble Thoughts. (laughs) Uh, That that somehow we wish that we only thought noble thoughts. We're good people. How many people here think that their heart is really good? I believe that everybody here thinks of themselves as kind, good. Honest, I believe that. I, you know, nobody comes here. I mean, first of all, I don't even think there are any people who get up and say, vengeance is mine. You know, <laughs> it just doesn't happen. I, I really don't believe that. I think that people are basically good. It's not pleasant to feel like that. I mean, when I'm angry, I'm so unhappy about When I'm mad at somebody. I'm so unhappy about it because it's so unpleasant feeling, isn't it? It's just really unpleasant. So I think we're all basically very good, and I think we have, that the mind is infinitely spacious, it makes up everything, it's privy to everything, it recirculates everything, it is narcissistic in the extreme, and it thinks it makes up ignoble thoughts. And you think to yourself, why did I think that? You ever have the kind of thoughts where you think it's very fortunate that there's not a public address system on the, now announcing my thought? Yeah, it's exactly so. On a retreat, if we had a public address system that announced out, we would have havoc, you know, that, uh, you know, because, you know, and especially as soon as you say to yourself, let me not have that bad thought about so-and-so, that's all you can have is a bad thought about so-and-so. The only thing we can have is minds that are somehow wide enough to say, that's all there, and I choose this. And when we see that, we get even to, to be able to say, what's all in my mind is in everybody's mind. It's in mind. 
And some people choose differently for reasons unfathomable, impossible to consider. But I thought that this was so important. I thought it was really important to tell the truth. I'll pass it around so you can look at the, the drawing. Did you see the new sign that's outside of Spirit Rock a few weeks long? We have two new signs. First of all, we have the signs as you come along. Somebody said they look like Burma Shave signs. <laughs> I think they're fine. Are you old enough to know what Burma Shave signs are? <laughs> so the three signs, may all beings be peaceful, may all beings be happy. Uh, those signs were put up on on uh, on September 11th. They, someone made them that day and put them out for the vigil that was held here that night, and they'll stay up there. I thought that's really wonderful. I mean, we put them up. The, I know who put them up, but and I didn't have anything to do with putting them up. But I thought it was wonderful that someone did that. When I drove up, I first of all felt my heart lift to see it, and then I thought it's really wonderful that we've come out in that way, you know, that we originally had a quite small sign for reasons of not, um, just that in general our architecture is modest, we don't want to be a splashy piece of the Woodacre scene, we have an understanding with the city of Woodacre that we have a modest um, presence, but that's, it's really time for us to come out and say, not Spirit Rock Meditation Center and a little sign, but this is what we stand for. This is what we do. There's also a sign um, as you come into the parking lot here. Welcome to Spirit Rock Meditation Center. This center is dedicated to diversity. Did you see that? It's a new sign. Yeah. It's a very good sign that we've put up. That's another thing that we need to say. I was looking at this picture of... Um, Oh, I know. On that last page of that um, story of uh, Welcome to Washington, D.C., the, the piece that somehow lost here, it said, um, on that day, um, ethnicity didn't marry, matter anymore. We weren't um, African-American or Asian-Americans or Armenian-Americans. We were just all Americans. I'm not sure. I, I want it not to matter in the sense that there are any distinctions that are made. I want us to acknowledge that we are a very diverse culture and that that's what we are and that we're meant to appreciate our diversity, not behave that it isn't true, not make it an obstacle, but not behave like it isn't true. That's what we look like. I'm looking at this picture of um, a naturalization ceremony for th 3,500 new citizens in Los Angeles in the Convention Center in uh, 1997. And everything is in there. I mean, it really looks wonderful. How many people here, I, I'll pass that around too, how many people here have grandparents that were born in the United States? great-grandparents that were born in the United States. 
Not so many, some. Where did they come from, yours? Ireland. When? My grandmother. In 17... Um, probably the 8th, 8th, I don't know. Probably the 1800s. Yeah. Who came themselves? Who here was born someplace else? Gerd was born in Germany. Yeah. Where were you born? Switzerland. Switzerland. Whose parents were born in Europe? Where were yours born, David? My father was born in the pale, in uh, a part of Poland that had been taken over by Russia. Yeah. My father also turned out to be, we lived in neighboring villages or something. We all live in neighboring villages. My mother was born in New York City, but just after her parents had come from Austria. What else? Where else? That's where my grandparents are from, Austria. Austria. What else? Same as you. My father is from one of these little Polish, Jewish, uh, yeah. Russian towns, so he came over. They came over. What else? Czechoslovakia. You were born there, your parents? Parents. Where Where else? Who else grew up in a house where they uh, spoke a different language at home than the one spoken, than English? What did they speak? Chinese. Chinese. Evelyn, where were you born? Oh, Southern California. Yeah, your parents also? Yes. But they still spoke? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And you speak? Um, very little. Yeah. yeah? I can't. <laughs> when did your parents come? My grandparents came from, uh, from China, and um, I, guess, I guess it was during building the railroad. I was going to say, did they come to build railroad? Yeah. I think that they. Yeah, I think they knew grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. Grandparents. Great grandparents. When you grew up, Evelyn, did you live in a community that was Chinese speaking or mostly Chinese people? No, not in no? No, definitely not. We were the only Chinese family in the entire county, Imperial County. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah? Wow. How was that for you? Oh, God, it was... Uh, I didn't think there was any difference. The only difference I felt, we moved to San Francisco when I was seven years old, and I felt I was, I was ostracized by the Chinese community because I didn't speak Chinese. Uh-huh. And I always felt very isolated from my roots, because I grew up in Southern California, Calexico, yeah. way down the border town, and um, I didn't feel any difference down in Calexico. Uh-huh. We just blended in. Yeah. I just, I felt the difference when I came up here yeah. <laughs> in San Francisco. Uh-huh. Huh. Where do you live now? In Tiburon. Uh-huh. <laughs> I grew up in the city, so it's sort of like all these different, you know, I blended, of course, two cultures. I sort of feel like it straddled two cultures all the time. Hmm. Who else feels straddling two cultures? Yeah. <coughs> I do because my father is Anglo and my mother's Puerto Rican. Uh-huh. And I grew up speaking Spanish as my first language. And when I started school and I do and because I look like my Irish father, I hear a lot of things that people don't realize that inside keeps a brown Puerto Rican heart. Yeah, yeah. 
this is important for us to say. You know, here we are, Spirit Rock, uh, devoted to diversity. Martha. My son's father is Puerto Rican. And all my life I just checked off, you know, white Caucasian and all those forms. And then I'm filling out a form for him. And all of a sudden I come to this word Hispanic. And it was, and it was like, oh, is he different than me? Yeah. Mm. And it's like... You know, what does this mean? And that's when I first started looking at this, when I first really got invested in diversity. Mm-hmm. You, know. you see, there's, like, there's a, for everybody a first moment where, like Evelyn said, I was, you know, I didn't notice until I moved to San Francisco. I was seven. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in a completely Jewish community. I didn't enter the home of a non-Jew till I was in college. And I didn't realize that until I was in my 30s. When I was already had been married for 10 years to someone of a different race and a different religion. And so my kids and my husband and my, my family were all different. And because my family was so small and my husband's family is so large, I feel a little of everything. Tell tell us your name again. Oh, my name is Margie. Margie. And you grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. People always get them confused. Yeah, there's only one city in the whole of Pennsylvania. (laughs) 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 It's another piece of narrow mindedness, actually. Well, we're hopeful that, I was going to say, we're hopeful that it is different, you know. But these days, I'm thinking about, if we speak enough about, if we celebrate diversity enough, it'll become what is, and diversity will not be different. You know, that'll be, it'll be what we are, because we already are. What were you going to say? My father was born in Buenos Aires because his parents left Poland or Russia, you know, so the first ten years of his life, he was, he lived in Buenos Aires. Yeah, yeah. And um, and spoke Spanish, but not in very well, but not in the home because they used did Yiddish. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> but my story is that when I was ten, we <clears throat> we moved to Oakland, and I was the only Jew in the grammar school mm-hmm. at ten years old, and that was. so such an awakening about bigotry and I mean I wanted a tree so kids wouldn't ask when are you going to get yours some kids couldn't play with me because I was Jewish mm-hmm. had a profound mm-hmm. impact mm-hmm. on my life and compassion and you know, mm-hmm. it was very difficult mm-hmm. what year well this that is a, that's okay yeah <laughs> no no when you ask people it, it makes the, the thing, here comes here, here comes my own my own grid into it. It makes a difference if you're a forty year old Jew or a fifty year old Jew or a sixty year old Jew or a seventy year old Jew, because it makes a big difference. How old are you? I'm not a forty year old. Well, let's start from there. That's all right. I am a sixty five year old one, so I. In nineteen fifty five, we moved. So, I mean, yeah. fifty six. Yeah. And yeah. since I've recently finished um, breast cancer treatment, I must say that getting older and older is quite a gift and quite wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, the whole, there's a whole thing about, if we're going to talk about isms, which I hope we're going to do, 
um, ageism is a huge thing. Ageism is a huge thing. It's a, now that I'm getting old, uh, I first notice it actually. Now that I'm getting old, I mean, I feel the same as ever. But I notice that there's a there's a very subtle kind of way in which um, um, age is uh, recognized or not recognized, or more not recognized. Um, anyway, somebody else is going to say, Garrett. I'm straddling three cultures, and I'm concerned about diversitism because right now that's a very cool thing, and I have diversity in my life up to my ears, and I can assure you that it's not quite that simple. And I want to show you a picture. Oh, yeah. This is the beautiful child that you told me about. Did you see her now or you met her now? No. Oh, this is a superimposed picture. I saw her mother for the first time in 38 years in April. And the picture of Lucy is superimposed because I know the woman who raised her in this country. And... Um, I can assure you that diversity in, within a family is not as simple. Mm. Um, but um, I do want to share, I'm going to a diversity healing group in Oakland tonight, that's mm. been a part of for four years, mm. that's being led by two very good friends of mine. One of them is Ayesha, who is a recovering black Muslim, and her husband is from Ghana. And they describe themselves as a mixed marriage. And I, if there's any interest, everybody's invited. I think these conversations are important, and I find that even my liberal Dharma friends are fairly naive about it. And this is not a judgment. This is mm. just an observation that comes from experience. I think what, what, what I think um, we are all trying to do these days in various ways, Spirit Rock, I'm happy to tell you, has had a diversity council actively training and working on trainings for five years to address whatever naivete we have about it. The thing about it is um, that seems so clear to me and to all the people that I work with who are very much involved in diversity is that there's no question that everybody believes and sincerely, somebody used to say, people of good heart. You know, when I said before, who here thinks they're good? You know, we do and we actually are. And so the... Um, the sense I have is that it will work because we're good, and we, we, it's true that we are. And uh, uh, I think there's a way, at least speaking for myself, where the fact that my heart is good has um, probably been one of the impediments to recognizing things that needed to be seen. Um, since, in fact, my heart is good, and it's not such an issue for me. I think that has been, in a way, counterproductive in uh, 
inspiring me to put my energy where it ought to be. So I'm looking at that very seriously these days. I think what I'd like to do, because it's two minutes to 11, or two minutes past, two minutes to, is um, I'd like for us to be able to leave having sat together for a few minutes. Um, you know, uh, Gert used the, the term recovering. I think we're all recovering at this point. We are all recovering from, uh, first of all, probably the biggest trauma of any of our lifetimes, you know. That might not be true. I don't take that back. The biggest collective trauma of our lifetimes. People here have had terrible personal trauma and terrible personal loss. And not everybody here has had the same terrible personal losses. I have a feeling that um, it's so incredible how some people's lives are just seem in some way blessed. And just in this lifetime, they go easily for them. Um, and some people's lives, it's just more complicated. And I, you know, I don't, I'm just really awed about how that happens and how people often manage to be with a great deal of pain in a, in a very noble way. But collectively, as a culture, as a planet, as a world, I think this is the most startling thing that collectively has happened to us. And it seems like at, at this time, more than any other time, we're going to have to figure out how to say, give me your hand, brother, or give me a hand, sister, or hold my hand. An image in my mind that my friend Mary gave me years ago. She said, um, it's all a matter of hands, you know, Sylvia. She said, when you get born, somebody catches you in their hands. You can't just fly out. Somebody has to be there to catch you. You can just fly out, but it's better if somebody catches you. Somebody has to catch you and do the right things with you, hold you up, cut the cord, do everything, swaddle you up. And in the end, when you're all finished, and usually somebody's hands you don't know, and when you're finished, somebody else's hands are going to put you in the grave at the end. And in between, it's going to be a lot of hand-holding. Because in the beginning, people are going to have to hold you. Then they'll hold your hand. I, I look around in, um, at, at the amount of hand-holding happening. I, I don't know if it's happening more than ever, but if, you, if you're in a shopping center... You see, big people hold the hands of small people. Their hand is down here and the small person's hand is up here. But we're holding on to each other all the time. You know? And then you see uh, adolescents and they're walking around holding hands. And then you see old folks and they're walking around holding hands. I'm not so sure that the, in between the adolescents and the old folks is enough hand holding. But we could start a new trend. Uh, I walk around with my daughters, all my quite my age, in shopping centers, holding hands. Why not? My mother did it with me. It's a nice thing to do. And then when you get old, here are these old folks holding hands, and then someone else's hands will, will, will bury you. And when we're sick, somebody else's hands minister to us. Really, I think that there's something about if we could all just sit down and hold hands for a little while. Maybe that would be a good thing. You can't, well, I'll hold my own hand because I'm going to be up here. But 
it's the same. I'll count myself in with you. Let's make an image. Make an image that at this very moment, by magic, by cosmic decree, the whole world puts down everything that they're doing, wherever they are. Everybody, the shopkeepers run out in the street. Everybody on trains. I love this idea. I was thinking about it last night. When we take refuges, we say, I undertake the vow to abstain from harming living beings and from taking that which isn't given to me or from unwise speech or unwise expression of my sexuality or living in a way that makes me confused. They all mean I'll do no harm. I thought to myself, what if People walked into supermarkets and announced on the loudspeaker, hello, I'll do no harm. <laughs> what if everybody on a subway, every time the doors closed, looked around, said, I'll do no harm. If everybody on planes stood up together before they sat down and looked around and said, I undertake the vow to abstain from harming living beings. They said to each other, relax, I'm trustworthy. We could all do it. We're just all human beings. We have ignoble thoughts all the time. That's just part of what comes with the apparatus. But we don't have to do ignoble things. We get to choose. We'll make up our own. Why don't I say a phrase and then you say it back? I vow to abstain from harming living beings. May all beings be peaceful. Relax, I'm trustworthy. May all beings be able to take care of themselves happily. May all beings come to the end of suffering. And may I be a contributing factor in bringing the end of suffering nearer. May I become aware through my meditation practice of whatever it is in me that prevents me from doing that. Now you can open your eyes. Don't let go of the hands. Not letting go of the hands. Just opening the eyes. Just opening the eyes. So a, 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 good, a good number of us will spend tomorrow in a synagogue one place or another thinking about the ways in which we, because of blindnesses we have, uh, have not done as much as we could have to contribute to the world good. And we'll make an intention to really dedicate ourselves to it. So I invite you in spirit to join us. Uh, one of the things that... Um, 
the Reverend Alan Jones of Grace Cathedral said at the memorial service in San Francisco, the interfaith last week, is he said, this is what you should do. He said, everybody go to church, but don't go to your own. <laughs> he said, all the Muslims should go to synagogues and the Jews should go to Christian churches and mosques and the Sikhs should go to the synagogues and the Baha'i should go to the churches. Everybody should go to another one, not their own. Everybody's going the same place. What does it matter what building you go in? Go in another person's building, all the better if they don't look like you. So tomorrow, whether or not you go in someone else's building, why don't you take a moment or an hour or sometime tomorrow and think about in your meditation tomorrow, what is it about myself that I don't see, that I can see now, that will make, it, will make my life more effective in ending suffering for all beings? And then we can all be um, observe, observing that day together. So we'll feel that we did it together. Many people um, fast tomorrow and make a donation of uh, food or money to a food bank that uh, is their food for the day, fast or not fast. But it's very nice tomorrow to bring food to a food bank. Um, in my particular congregation, the people bring the food tonight before sundown, so they bring in these great bags of food and they leave them in unperishable food in the uh, entryway of the synagogue. And tomorrow afternoon, at uh, the people stay at the synagogue from morning till night, so you're there all day. And there's one point where this big, noisy truck drives up in the back, and you hear them with, with uh, uh, those um, forklifts up and down, moving all of this food into the truck. And you have this great feeling that this whole collective body is today feeding a whole meal many meals to all to some people that we don't know at all so bring some money to a food bank to uh, some money or some food to a food bank bring it to the homeless shelter do something tomorrow where you put food in other people's mouths because that's really the inclination of our hearts if we think about it and uh, the uh, blessing that you say to people you, you tell them uh, easy over the fast and then you say May you be sealed for everything good in a new year. So, I'd like you to look at the person next to you and say, may you be sealed for everything good in the new year. <laughs> and we'll see all of us, we'll all see each other next week when it will be the first Wednesday of the month and so we'll be here early however if you come early, however many of you come early we come at 7:30 and we just have a little bit of a smaller group it's a warm up we talk dharma together <laughs> if you want to come early it's wonderful come early yeah yeah
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.